wanted to do the millennial reign of Christ, but um, I thought we really need to get down to earth today. And uh, in my prayer about this, uh, I was strongly convinced that the Lord wanted us to look at Ecclesiastes today. So we're going to give you a quick overview of the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's uh, start with Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says these are the words of the preacher, or as others, uh, other translations will say, the teacher. The preacher or the teacher. This teacher is the son of who? David. David. And we don't know who that would be specifically because David had many, many sons. But he narrows it down even further and says this preacher was the what? King of Jerusalem. And so who is this preacher? Who is this preacher? This preacher is King Solomon. Now, I want to bring a couple of statements to, I want you to read a couple of things that he writes in this book, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll give you a tad of background. But I want you to look at verses uh, 13 and following, where he gives you his motive for writing this book. I set my heart to seek and to search out by what? Wisdom. Everybody together. I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. I want to know everything that we do under heaven. I want to put it together. I want to be able to analyze it. I want to make sense of it. And notice how he describes everything that is done under heaven in verse 13. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of men by which they may be exercised or afflicted. I like the way the uh, one other translation puts that in Ecclesiastes. He says this in verse 13. He says, I devoted myself to search for understanding and to explore by wisdom everything being done under heaven. And I soon discovered that God has dealt a tragic existence to the human race. Now, I don't know where you stand as far as that statement is concerned, but that's King Solomon stating that. Now, we could go through the book and we could talk about his motives, his moral motives for dealing with this, but let's stop right there for a minute, okay? And let's go back and see if he really has the credentials to talk about what he's talking about. If you have your Bible and you can go back to 1 Kings easily, 1 Kings chapter 3, you'll remember that in 1 Kings chapter 3, when King Solomon became the king of Israel, he said to the Lord, you know what, I can't do this job. I can't do this job. You can read between the lines easily when he says, I'm just a kid. I'm just a kid and I think like a kid and there's no way in the world I'm going to be able to really deal with this great big nation you have given me. That's how he saw it. And so the Lord says, well, what do you want me to do for you? In chapter, I will answer your prayer as to what you think you need as the king of Israel. And so King Solomon said, well, Lord, I'll tell you what, I need as much wisdom as I possibly can get. And so here's the Lord's response 
to Solomon. The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said to him, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have you asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice, I'm going to grant your request. And not only am I going to grant your request, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. I've given you also the things that you have not asked for. And then he says, all of this is going to work perfectly if you walk in my ways. Now, I want you to turn over to the fourth chapter of 1 Kings, and I just want to read a couple of other verses here, starting at verse 29. Because here over the life of David, over his lifetime, is a very simple summary of how the Lord answered his prayer. In verse 29, Bible says, God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. Now, that's a lot to say about King Solomon. And then in verse 34, he said, For he was wiser than all men, and God even lists the men through, through the author of First Kings. He even lists some of the wisest men in the world at that time. And he says his fame was in all surrounding nations. Look at verse 32. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. Now look at verse 33. He also spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish, and men of all nations from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. He must have had some, some seminars on being wise. But he knew everything there was about animals and, and uh, earth and, and sky and sea and all that kind of... That's implied here, you see, because I always wondered... I always wondered who put together the first edition of Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> That's our nation's first encyclopedia, and it was put together. It was only like three volumes at the time, but he's a walking encyclopedia. But you know that after King Solomon became the king of Israel and he ruled well, you'll remember that he had a personal downfall, don't you? You remember that he fell like a rock. He, he, uh, he had a personal downfall. And now I think that what you're seeing here is that he is an older man now. He is. This is not what he wrote when he was younger. But now that life is almost over for King Solomon, he is going back to those days when his faith was maybe small and maybe growing and hadn't completely grown the way it should have. And he is going back now, and he is returning finally because he gets it at the end. Now, a lot of people will say, how could Solomon be 
the wisest man in the world and makes so many big mistakes later on in his life. How is that possible? Well, let me simply say this to you. Is this not a true statement? All the wisdom in the world won't keep you from sin if you don't want to be kept from sin. You see, all the wisdom in the world isn't going to override your own personal will. Wisdom helps us to make wise decisions, but wisdom doesn't make those decisions for us. Does that make sense? All right. We don't need to go any further. Now, there's a couple of observations that I want to make for you very quickly. When you're reading through the book of Ecclesiastes, I want you to notice that there are some phrases that he uses over and over and over and over again. Number one, in verse three, the very first time he uses this phrase, he says, what profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? There are 27 times where he talks about life under the sun, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. And that is significant, you see, because what Solomon is admitting to you and I is that when he fell, he was living his life under the sun and no higher. That didn't mean he didn't know God. It didn't mean that he wasn't in, in obedience to God at certain things in his, with certain things in his life. But he had really turned his back on the Lord. And he had really destroyed, tried to figure out how he could become happy. That's a good word to put in there. How he could become happy apart from God. I guess the stress of being the king led him to that need. I can't tell you how many times he talks about life being hard work, hard work. He talks about that many, many times. Life is a hard, hard thing, and there's a lot to it, and what do we get out of it when all is said and done? And he tells us many, gives us many answers to that in the book of Ecclesiastes. But you've got to keep that statement in mind under the sun. And the reason why you have to do that is because Solomon has adopted a humanistic worldview, He's abandoned, if he ever fully developed a biblical worldview. If he has, he abandoned it. If not, he is just now getting to the place where he is really, really, really developing it well in his life. So the reason why I say that to you, so how do I know when Solomon is being sarcastic? You're going to look at that. You're going to ask yourself that question when you read the book of Ecclesiastes. How do I know when Solomon is being sarcastic? For instance, in chapter 7... Verses 15 through 18. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to read, you read, I, I, King James Version is what I'd like to read out of, but I love the way these statements are made in uh, this translation or this paraphrase of Scripture. He says, I have seen everything in this meaningless life, including the death of good young people and the long life of wicked people. He said, that doesn't make sense to me. So don't be too good or too wise. Why destroy yourself? On the other hand, don't be too wicked either. Don't be a fool. Why die before your time? Pay attention to these instructions, for anyone who fears God will avoid both extremes. Now I look at that and I say to myself, hmm, 
Is he being sarcastic? Or is he telling the truth? Is there partial truth in there? Like, you know, if we fear God, certainly that is right. Uh, is he being cynical? What's the situation? And we could go through the book of Ecclesiastes and we could come up with several, several examples of that. And you have to ask yourself the question. You have to know how to handle this book so that you can answer that question as to whether or not he is just being cynical or sarcastic or he's now telling you exactly what you need to do in light of what he has discovered. The second word that he used constantly, and he uses it far more than under the sun, is the word vanity. Everything is vanity. Vanity, vanity. All is vanity. Now, that means that everything is meaningless. I don't need to spend 10, 15 minutes here to define the term vanity. It really means that Solomon, when he looks at this world and everything, he says, you know what? He says it's rather meaningless. When I look at life under the sun, now understand, he's, he's talking about the way we live our lives here in our humanistic approach. See? And when he talks about that, he says, you know, I don't find any much, very much meaning in life whatsoever. Uh, I just don't find much meaning in life whatsoever. So how do we best analyze the book of Ecclesiastes? Well, I'm going back to what I've learned in 40-some years, and uh, it was, I was probably about 20 years in the ministry before I actually came to this conclusion. I came to the conclusion that uh, there's only about four things you really need to know when you look at God's Word. You need to know what the situation is, you need to know if there's a problem for you to endure or there's a, a blessing for you to embrace. And uh, I get a yellow pencil out. And when I get a yellow pencil out or a highlighter, I, I do all of the, all of the uh, descriptions of problems and the, the description of my neighborhood and all the stuff that's going on around me. And I put it down in, I highlight it in yellow. And uh, here's a good example in chapter 1, verse 3. After he says, everything is meaningless, completely meaningless, what do people get for all their hard work? That's the question he's asking. He says, what do people get for all of their hard work under the sun? Now he describes what life is like here on this planet. And what does he say to us in Ecclesiastes chapter 1? He says, one generation passes away and another generation comes. But the earth abides forever. I wish we all could understand that today. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full to the place from which the rivers come. There they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. We cannot fully comprehend all of that. But you know, we live in a world where we look at all of this stuff and we see this constant cycle, the hydrological cycle. These are, these are, these are in layman's terms, some really scientific bits of information. 
And it doesn't make any difference if you're the first generation, the fifth, the tenth, the twelfth. We all see the sun come up and go down. It doesn't make any difference if you're 50 generations out. We all see the wind move about on the earth in the same way. It's always done. It doesn't make any difference if you're 100 generations out. It doesn't matter at all. He wants us to understand that, you know what? Uh, Rainwater uh, comes on the earth because it's evaporated in the sea. It comes across by clouds. God dumps it on the face of the earth. And in all of this, we see generations come and generations go, and it leads us all to say, you know what? Life really doesn't satisfy me. It's a boring existence. The same thing keeps happening over and over and over and over again. Now you know why God excites everybody when he, when there's, when he creates a storm. I'm, I'm being a little sarcastic. <laughs> see what I'm saying? You see what I'm saying? This is the kind of stuff that Solomon grapples with in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so it's important for you. And so what I do is I highlight all those situations in yellow. Um, and uh, for instance, in verse 9, history merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. That's his observation. All right? And, uh, and on and on and on it goes. The second thing, and now, I, now that you know where I'm going with this, you know that you and I need to always understand what Scripture teaches us about our natural reaction to all of these situations. What's our natural reaction? And I always highlight that in what color? Everybody knows I do it in what? Orange. And then there's only two other things that I need to worry about. I need to worry about moving my natural reaction to one is, that is more spiritual, one that more honors God, one that's more appropriate for someone who's trusting the Lord. Instead of doing what comes natural to me, what does God want me to do instead? I highlight that in green. And then the almost important question is, why does God want me to believe this and do this instead of believe and do that? That's it. Four things. Four things. So I find that to be the best way to analyze Ecclesiastes. I think because I analyzed the book of Ecclesiastes that way, I have skipped over and I have avoided a lot of the things in the book that are sarcastic, that are cynical, and the things that God actually wants us to do. Now, let me test you for just a second. In chapter 9, in chapter 9, verses 3, 7, and 8, I want to give you a situation and I want to test you on it, all right? In chapter 9, verse 3, the Bible tells us what the situation is. In chapter 9, verse 3, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun. Solomon has observed this perhaps for years and years and years. That one thing happens to all. Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now let me explain it in th this paraphrase. This too I carefully explored, even though the actions of godly and wise people are in God's hands, no one knows whether God will show them favor. Did you hear that? 
that's implied in the text there. If you and I do the right thing, we're not 100% sure that life is going to work out better for us because of that. We would like to believe that, and there are many promises in God's Word that for the righteous, but those are, those are cumulative to some degree. Some of them are special, and you and I have to admit that when we live on this world and we do the right thing, it doesn't automatically prove that God's going to favor us at that point. Right? Right? The same, and then he says, the same destiny ultimately awaits everyone, whether righteous or wicked, good or bad, ceremony clean or unclean, religious or irreligious, good people receive the same treatment as sinners, and people who make promises to God are treated like people who don't. Now, his comment, his comment, uh, those were the first three verses. I'm sorry, I should have read the first three verses. His comment is verse three. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. Does not make any sense to me that that is what should happen? Now, that would have been your natural reaction if I tested you on that, right? But does King Solomon get around to answering that question in a greater degree in the book of Ecclesiastes? And yes, he does. Yes, he does. But I just want to remind you that he says an awful lot about problems. Now, let me give you a few. And once again, I'm giving, the, giving these to you from, uh, uh, from uh, my paraphrase here this morning so that it's easier for us to go through this very, very quickly, all right? So in chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, the Bible tells us that life is meaningless. And in chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, what did King Solomon decide he was going to do about it? He said, well, I'm going to try to, instead of working hard and seemingly get no happiness and enjoyment out of that, he says, I'm going to, I'm going to try the pleasures and the good things of life. And he gives a list of things that he did. He gives a list of things that he did. He said, I tried laughter and mirth, and I tried building used homes for myself and planting beautiful vineyards for myself and planting groves for myself and vineyards and reservoirs and swimming pools. And um, I collected great sums of money. I was really investing heavily in silver and in gold. He says, but... But in verse 11 of chapter 2, he comes to the conclusion that this didn't work. It didn't do what he thought it would do. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. Now, in Solomon's defense... <laughs> You see, Solomon grew up in a Christian home, right? From a biblical standpoint in the Old Testament, he grew up in a Christian home. And now he's the king of Israel, and God has promised him all of this wisdom and all of this kind of stuff. So he really didn't have an opportunity to live this kind of a, 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 a lifestyle to the degree that he is talking about it here in this passage of Scripture. And so in order for him to answer the question as the wisest person in the world, whether this stuff is valuable or not, he had the idea that I've got to personally immerse myself in all of this to see whether or not there's any truth to it, that I can be happy. 
See, see the point? I had to immerse myself in the things that I'm analyzing. And when he immersed himself in the things that he was analyzing, he came to the conclusion what? Ah, it's all meaningless. It's all meaningless. It's all meaningless. Now, I want you to, I want you to go to chapter 3, verse 16. I'm just going to briefly show you a couple of things, a couple of things that he shares here. Now, I'm just picking out a few. And I'm hoping that it'll whet your appetite. If you're not in the daily Bible reading, reading through the book of Ecclesiastes, I hope you're going to sit down and read it. I'm just giving you a few here of some of those yellow things that I covered. In chapter 3, verse 16, he said, I also noticed that under the sun there is evil in the courtroom. Yes, even the courts of law are corrupt. Fortunately, he has something great to say right after that. I said to myself, in due season, God will judge everyone, both good and bad, for all their deeds. And man, I highlighted that in blue right away, because I knew that to be true. In verse 18, I also thought about the human condition, how God proves to people that they are like animals, for we all share the same space, and guess what? We all die. All right? And, uh, and he even has the audacity to say in verse 21, who can prove that the human spirit goes up and the spirit of animals goes down into the earth? Who can prove that? But you see, he's immersing himself into the, into the humanistic worldview when he says that. Because you know later in the book, he comes away saying, no, God has given eternity in our hearts and um, there is life after death, you see. But, but isn't it nice that he's catching us at our weakest moments? Isn't it nice he's catching us when we're as far away from the Lord as possible? And this is how the human race thinks. All right. Verse 4 of chapter 4. Then I observe that most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. All right. Uh, verse, uh, verse 14 he says, such a, oh, he said, well, let, let's, let's move on. We just don't have time to look at all of these. Let's go to chapter, 15, uh, chapter 5, verse 8. In chapter 5, verse 8, he says, don't be surprised if you see a poor person being oppressed by the powerful and if justice is being miscarried throughout the land. Don't be surprised by that. In verse 13, he says, there is another serious problem I've seen under heaven. Under the sun, hoarding riches harms the saver. In chapter 6, verse 1, let me give you a couple of others here. There is another serious tragedy I've seen under the sun, and it weighs heavily on humanity. God gives some people great wealth and honor and everything they could ever want, but then He doesn't give them the chance to enjoy these things. They die in someone else. Even a stranger ends up enjoying their wealth. Verse 7, all people spend their lives scratching for food, but they never seem to have enough. Verse, chapter 8, verse 7. Chapter 8, verse 7. Indeed, how can people avoid what they don't know is going to happen? How can you avoid what you don't know is going to happen? None of us can hold back our spirit from departing. None of us has the power to prevent the day of our death. There's no escaping that obligation, that dark battle. And in the face of death, wickedness certainly will not rescue even the wicked. Um, I could go on and on. Verse 9, I, I like verse 9. I have thought deeply about all that goes on here under the sun where people have the power to hurt each other. 
And he talks about that. He talks about that, and uh, he says, this just is meaningless, it's purposeless in my thinking. And, it, and, 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 and then in verse 14, he says, In this life, good people are often treated as though they were wicked, and wicked people are often treated as though they were good. Now, I'll tell you what, back up to the next one, because we're going to end with that one. I'm going to end with that one. i got a bunch of other stuff here. I'm going to give you a quick conclusion, but I want to I back up to that one for a second. In verse 9, I have thought deeply about all of those who go, they're here under the sun, who have the power to hurt each other. I have seen wicked people buried with honor, yet they were the very ones who frequented the temple and are now praised in the same city where they committed their crimes. The reason I backed up is because this is so relevant for today. The whole book is. This too is meaningless. When a crime, Solomon, when a crime is not punished quickly, people feel it's safe to do wrong. But even though a person sins a hundred times and still lives a long time, I know that only those who fear God will be better off. Which leads me to the conclusion of the book. When you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, several times you're going to read, listen, listen, live your life but enjoy it. Don't work so hard that you can't enjoy life. Live your life and enjoy it. He says, it's okay, it's a gift from God for you to be able to do that. Why are you on this earth anyway? Not just to, to live a, a, a horrible existence. And, um, and, and then he says things like, several times he does that. It, it's really refreshing to hear. Sometimes I ask myself, is he being cynical when he says it or not? But no, I think when you get to the end of the book, you're going to say, listen... Here's the problem we have with the human race. Our problem is we want to live our lives apart from God. We want to be happy, but we don't want to include God. We want to, we want to work, but we don't find satisfaction in our work because we don't include the Lord in it. And so he says to us finally, and he addresses it in the end of this book in chapter 11 and 12, and I'm just going to share it with you to whet your appetite more for reading this is the last chapter in the daily Bible reading for this week, I believe it is. But in verse 11, he says, Light is sweet, how pleasant to see a new day dawning. It's wonderful to get up and watch the sunrise. It's wonderful to do that. When people live to be very old, let them rejoice in every day of life. But, but, they need to remember that there are always going to be many dark days as we're growing old. Well, that sounds like a pretty good conclusion to me. Young people in the very next verse. It's wonderful to be young. Enjoy every minute of it. Do everything you want to do. Take it all in. But remember that God is going to hold you account for everything you do. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. So read chapter 12 where he says, remember your creator right off the bat of life. Remember your creator. Don't wait till you get through your youth. Don't wait till you get into middle age. Don't wait till you get into old age. In fact, he says, remember your creator before you get so old. You can't see anymore. You can't hear anymore. You can't walk anymore. And you're scared of everything under the sun. And et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's what he says. Read it. 
It's all there. His, uh, his description of aches and pains and his description of life at the end of the road is pretty dramatic when you read it. And he says, listen, if you don't find your creator and you don't trust your creator and you don't fear your creator and you don't live to honor the Lord until you get to that place, I feel sorry for you. I feel sorry for you. It ought to start when we're young and can enjoy life to its fullest. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, that's a little taste of the book of Ecclesiastes, and I hope you're going to find it really helpful in your daily Bible reading. Let's close in a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we noted in there that, and we will note in there when we read it, that fearing you becomes the real byword for Solomon. And Lord, we know that he said in the book of Proverbs that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And so, Lord, we just pray that you'd help us to understand that life under the sun apart from you is no fun. Life under the sun apart from you is meaningless and without purpose. And we just live our lives in bitterness and anger and disappointment wondering where, whether or not we can get to that utopia that we're all looking forward to. But Lord, it never comes. It's never going to come. You're going to create the utopia that we all crave for when, Jesus, you return to this earth. Father, we pray that you would encourage all of us to trust, to trust you implicitly. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you've done and pray that you would enable us to recognize that you willingly gave yourself for us to forgive us of our sins so that our lives could be free from all of the mess that Solomon discusses. In Jesus, your name we pray, amen. Everybody.